Ladies and gents, my name is Brandon Stover. Welcome to the How to Solve Climate Change course from Plato University. Causes, systems, obstacles, solutions to this global challenge is what you're going to learn here today. When you're ready to learn more skills, join us for free at Plato.University. Let's get started with today's lesson. We'll have our expert guests briefly introduce themselves and their credentials for why they are able to speak to this topic. Benjamin Sovolet, I'm a bit odd in that I have multiple professorships, as if one wasn't enough. So I'm a professor of energy policy at the University of Sussex Business School in the UK. I'm a professor of earth and environment here in the United States at Boston University. And I still have a university distinguished professorship at Bournemouth University in Denmark business and social sciences. And that kind of unpacks different dimensions of what we'll talk about today, which does include things like policies. And it does include things like our relationship with the planet. And it also includes things like business models and social science research designs. And so I like to classify myself as an interdisciplinary social scientist who studies energy and climate issues. Could you explain succinctly what carbon lock-in is from first principles? Sure. So it's a bit of an odd term. And it kind of indicates how we become locked into different fossil fuel infrastructures over time. And obviously, you know, anyone paying attention, even today in 2023, the majority of our global energy system still depends on three fossil fuels, natural gas, oil, and coal. In some recent rebounds, like with COVID, Brexit in Ukraine, we've seen coal consumption increase as well as gas consumption increase outside of Europe as countries like the U.S. increase their oil productions offset dependence on Russian gas. So in a way, we're actually getting even more locked in mm. to carbon intensity. But the term doesn't fly a lock. It kind of implies that once you start down this pathway, you then create investments and decisions that reinforce, that create these sort of feedback loops that create more carbon lock-in. And there are terms that are used that maybe are more intuitive, like path dependence or momentum which kind of implies that, you know, we align parts of society and that's the second aspect of lock-in. It isn't just technological. We also align behavioral practices, financing flows, business models, and other social infrastructures, insurance regimes to support fossil fuels as well, even educational systems. My beloved PhD is from Virginia Tech and Virginia Tech is known as having one of the top programs for mining. So we train a lot of people who are going into the extractive industries, especially coal. Same with the Colorado School of Mines, which is an outstanding school in the Midwest. So it's kind of like even the epistemic skills we need, how do you assess rates of coal? How do you assess different you know, values of oil? How do you extract? Those are very technical. And we also have a knowledge architecture. So that gets really into what lock-in really is. It's kind of locked-in societies, politics, economic systems, social practices, and technological infrastructures to promote and extend fossil fuels. Why does carbon lock-in impede us from creating solutions or overcoming climate change? Well, it's partly in the term, right? I mean, if, if lock-in is all of these dimensions, then it means that systems change can't just be one dimension. It's like systems change can't just be technological. You got a new fuel cell. You got a new solar panel. You got out of a battery for an EV, this kind of explains why these innovations face so much resistance, because the system that they're trying to overturn isn't just technological, it's also intimately social, political, and cultural. And those sorts of changes often take generations. 
as Max Planck, the physicist, used to say, really good new ideas, and you can extend this to innovations, really good new ideas don't take hold because they're superior in merit. They usually take hold because the generation of the old ideas dies off. <laughs> so that really implies like we have to wait for a lot of people that think this way to either really change their views or unfortunately perish from the earth. And I think that another aspect of it is the long-lived nature of these types of investments. And this is more on the technological side. So you can break down walking into kind of technical, well, behavioral and economic, but on the technical side, when you build a coal-fired power plant or you build a gas pipeline or you build a nuclear reactor, you know, these things have at a minimum 30 to 40 year lifetimes. And now that we're extending nuclear reactors, 50, 60, 70 year lifetimes. Hydroelectric dams, there are some like Niagara Falls that have been around for more than a century. And there are even ancient dams that go back a thousand years in Egypt, right? So like we have these infrastructures that are meant to be here for thousands of years. And that means that any new investments today that we make, and we're still making oil and gas play, or maybe a carbon pipeline or a gas pipeline, like along the lead pipeline, which is a pipeline that went online within this decade from Norway to the UK to connect Norwegian gas fields to UK consumption, which they desperately need. That's got to run for 50 years, right? Or their investors aren't going to make a profit. And so I think that's the other hidden thing is like, well, the investment decisions we make today, even though they're made today, could create lock-ins for at least a half century, which is why it's so dangerous to be investing in these long-lived infrastructures. Buildings are another example, roads, bridges, when you build them now, they need to last for decades. And so that kind of does double down. And, and, and kind of a second connection to this is the socio-technical system around those infrastructures. Nuclear power is a great example. Because if you're going to operate nuclear power reliably, you also have to keep going the nuclear skills. You got to keep going people who know about uranium mining and radiation and accidents and maintenance and, and also spent fuel, which will also last up to 10, 20,000 years. So there's another example of like, you know, we're also committing now with decisions now, energy choices for 50, 60, 70,000 years. And we'll have to keep locking ourselves into having that expertise and skill base if we're ever going to manage those risks within the energy system. Why it's important to address this obstacle? Like what's at stake if we don't start addressing the carbon lock-in? Really, it's risks of climate change. Which, which is only one of the aspects. I think there are actually kind of three. I think that the risks of climate change are significant and severe. We've got new projections that indicate actually this month that we are on track for one and a half degree of centigrade warming that's already committed. So even if we magically stopped the meeting tomorrow, you will already see because of lags, concentrations in the atmosphere, temperature changes that are, are dangerous. Once we go past two degrees, we start to kind of exceed the limits of most natural ecosystems to actually function. And we run the risk of things like melting ice sheets, storm surges, heat waves, droughts, and wildfires. Once we get to like four degrees change, it's hell on earth. It's like we have an unlivable planet and we have mass migration and, and a whole variety of other really, really toxic things that happen. And unfortunately, the most recent IPCC report, this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that tracks climate science, has, they synthesized, right? They synthesized seven years of research. And the most recent synthesis talked about how we had a more probable than not, a greater than 50% chance probability today that we will exceed four degree temperature change. And we have a very likely scenario 
like about two thirds probability that we will achieve a 3.8 increase in rate change. These are devastating changes for the planet. And I'm looking for some data that I just presented because I really want to get the numbers right because they are actually extremely fascinating. Just to put this into context, according to a study in Nature, this is probably one of the best journals in the world, a two degree change. So not a four degree change or a three and a half degree change, just a two degree temperature change, which we're very likely to actually hit, will put 3.6 billion people at risk of water stress. Five point nine nine billion people at risk of heat waves and death of extreme heat, and three hundred and sixty two million people at risk to crop yield changes and food security, and six hundred and eighty million people at risk of habitat degradation. This is massive, and just one impact from climate change, sea level rise. That's just one could actually create one hundred trillion dollars in costs by the end of the century per year. That's all of the world's GDP right now. By the way, it's about trillion. But granted, that's just one reason. That's just one reason that we should lock ourselves into fossil fuels. The second reason isn't even climate and it's the environment. It's that fossil fuel extraction isn't just emitting methane and carbon dioxide. It's also creating acid rain. It's creating mine tailings uh, and a whole variety of other toxic forms of pollution. And uh, unbelievably, the United Nations has an ecosystem assessment. And that assessment, which is about four years old, anticipated that by the end of this century, so in our lifetimes, we see 1 million species at loss of extinction. One, not like 10 species, not like elephants and polar bears, like a million species are at stake due to a heating planet and, and, and biodiversity loss and habitat destruction and deforestation. And then the third and final reason, as if this wasn't enough, is actually a hidden opportunity. And there is a lot of money to be made with mitigating climate change because many of the things that you should do you help fight carbon lock-in, improve efficiency, improve productivity, diversify your energy sources, make energy more domestic, do more organic food, eat less meat. These things have so many other co-benefits for health and jobs and resilience and security that the low carbon transition is the free lunch you get paid to eat. The International Energy Agency says it's a hundred trillion dollar opportunity by 2040. And the ability for, you know, like the cost benefit ratio of things like Improved cook stoves, it's like one to 70. Every dollar you put into the cook stoves gives you $70 in health benefits. For building efficiency, it's like 40. Every dollar you put into building efficiency, you get like $40 in benefits for health and well-being, et cetera. So the co-benefits, like the non-environmental reasons to act on climate and to push out carbon lock-in are almost as immense as the environment. How might we mitigate or eliminate this obstacle of carbon lock-in for climate solutions? So I think there are all sorts of typologies and people who suggest, I like two of them. One of them talks about this notion of top-down change and bottom-up change together. This is a kind of simplified reading of Eleanor Ostrom, Nobel laureate in economics, who passed away a few years ago. She was fantastic. And she talked about when we solve societal problems, well, common pool resource problems like rivers and streams in the atmosphere, uh, what you have to do simultaneously is work at multiple scales. That's why it's polycentric rather than so it implies you don't just need action from the state. So the state's going to be doing things like renewable energy standards and permits and tax breaks and all of that. You also need action from civil society who helps promote indigenous rights, free prior informed consent and helps hold people accountable. But you also need actions from corporations, right? Which are actually modifying their supply chains and you're trying to create new business models. And then consumers, we have to change our own behavior as well. And when you have actions that blend 
that for top-down, bottom-up, multidimensional scale, you see action that's much more effective, much more accountable, much more trustworthy, much more robust than if you only acted in one scale of isolation alone. And this is actually a hidden plus from the recent IPCC report in chapter four, which I helped co-author. There's a section on subnational actors. These are actors below the state, actors like cities, actors like corporate initiatives, actors like consumer, consumer groups banding together and like pledges that different people made like mission possible. If you look at the ambition of those actions, they will save more carbon than the entire UN system. So we will save more carbon from these non-state actors than we will save from the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Accords. Uh, and that's the hope. It's like we already are acting polycentrically and people are recognizing we've got to go beyond the state. So I think there's a lot of promise with these, these kind of untraditional actors. Just go over it. The other typology is one that just unpacks lock to being more than technological. If it's also economic, political, and social, that's beginning to get you a blueprint for how we can actually get out of foreign lock We have to change our political systems at a minimum is pricing carbon, at a minimum is setting aggressive targets for net zero, and maybe even going further with carbon removal obligations. Um, or doing really good low income assistance programs because carbon interventions often hurt more. At a minimum, we've got to actually get to grapple with economic impacts. That means, you know, making sure that we price externalities, making sure that we, we don't have good corporate tax standards, making sure that we catch, you know, loopholes and leakage. And we're really rigorous in enforcing a lot of our rules. The UK is great here. The UK has an amazing climate change act where if companies don't meet their carbon targets. They're fined. And then after they're fined, they lose their licenses. So, like, so it's like, it's real. And companies in the UK, like Tata Steel, British Airways and Rolls-Royce, take those carbon obligations extremely seriously. And finally, we've got to change our own behavior. 72% of global carbon emissions are related to our choices as consumers, right? Industry doesn't just make steel for the heck of it. <laughs> they're not extracting oil and gas just because they love to do that. They're selling it to us and our carbon-intensive lifestyles. And there are actually four things that you could do starting this week that could cut your carbon footprint in half. If you eat less meat, okay, maybe give it up, become a vegan vegetarian, but at least eat less meat per week. That has a huge meat impact on the climate. If you give up your car or drive less, cycle and walk and take less transit. Big one, Brandon. Stop flying. A single log mall flight uses up basically your cur- your kind of household carbon budget for the year. Um, or as other colleagues have pointed out, like a single transatlantic flight is exceeding the carbon footprint of a whole household in Africa for the year. So it's like, we forget just how bad aviation is. And I was just reading this week, France has banned short haul flights uh, that are shorter than two and a half hours, wherever there's buses and train connections. So it's like, this is a giddy at that's really dangerous aviation. And I think the fourth thing that, that people can do is, is invest in household energy efficiency uh, especially for heat, hot water, and air conditioning. Those are kind of now the three big loads. Uh, just being a bit more comfortable with temperatures, like wear a jumper or sweater in the winter and maybe allow yourself to be a little bit hotter in the summer um, and invest in things like heat pumps. These are you more of those. Especially if you give up your car and you stop eating meat, your carbon footprint drops by about 90%, 90%. So you can unlock the carbon intensity of your own lifestyle with decisions just like this starting tomorrow. What are some of the best resources to learn more about carbon lock-in in relation to climate change? I recommend three resources to learn more. 
The first is a, a really talented scholar called Gregory Andrew, who actually hypothesized lock-in about 25 years ago. And he has uh, an article called Understanding Carbon Lock-in. And it is preceded two years later by an article called Escaping Carbon Lock-in. So I would check out those two. Andrew is UNRH. You can pretty much find them for free online. The third resource, which comes about 15 years later, is a report that Marilyn Brown led from Oak Ridge National Lab. It's called Carbon Lock-in Barriers to Deploying Climate Change Mitigation Technologies. Uh, it's really, really good. And it also takes a very holistic lens where they're looking at things like intellectual property and patents. They're looking at policies and technologies. And finally, for the most kind of state-of-the-art thinking, the IPCC report itself, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in their third report called Mitigation of Climate Change, so it was published last year, actually has a whole section on lock-in and path dependence in chapter six on energy. And they talk about lock-in in a variety of ways, institutional, political, cultural, economic, and so forth. And what I like about both the Oak Bridge report and the IPCC report, all of them are free. You can download them later today just by going on the web and searching. So the chapter six on energy in the 2022 report, the CC climate change. Right now, you're speaking to passionate students who want to actually solve problems like these. What top three skills should they study so that they actually have the ability to do so? Well, it's tricky, right? Because lock-in, if it's not just a technical problem, it's not just engineers, and no one can be a master of all disciplines. And I think that's maybe the first lesson, is that no single discipline has a monopoly on a skating carpet law. We need engineers, we also need sociologists political scientists, economists, finance experts, you know, all of them working together, which makes it a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary challenge in ways that probably explains why we haven't made that much progress. Uh, business is another great example. Business studies, people looking at industrial state relations and so forth. But I think the second one is that realize that you also have a lot of power and agency as a consumer and a voter. This is, you know, exercise your democratic skills and your ability to protest, your ability to vote for candidates or parties that take climate change seriously. You're investing your pension if you have one, right? Or stocks in the stock market, and companies deserve it. And you're also doing things like holding people accountable that are carbon intensive. We just saw in Britain last week, 500 students refused to work for oil and gas companies. It's like a new class of students who were not even going to interview with you. We don't like what you're doing to the planet. So I really like these kind of direct action techniques that young people and youth and students can do. Finally, I think though, in terms of, of skills, just follow more of the actual scientific trends. And that's, I guess, the third recommendation. This is more like media analysis and kind of uh, literacy skills. And that's just that there's so much misinformation on climate change. Uh, and you can't trust everything you read, laws and newspaper stories, and even things on Fox News, they're not news. And so I think the credibility of information sources here is really, really key. So generally, look at what the IPCC says. The International Energy Agency is pretty robust. The International Renewable Energy Agency. And if you hear in the U.S., the Department of Energy as the Energy Information Administration. It's a mouthful, but they also publish free reports. That's pretty much all you need. Like reliable data on climate energy from those sources gets you 95% of what you have to do to understand Things. You'd be amazed at how often they're misrepresented or just not represented adequately in current discourse. So I think that's a start. Recognize it's a multidisciplinary challenge. And so if you are trying to solve lock-in in your careers, you'll have to work with others. 
recognize that you have a lot of power yourself as an individual that shaping other people, your family and friends, and then recognize that you got to keep on, you got to educate yourself even if you don't want to and keep on top of trends. I guess that's the best I got. Any final recommendations for the audience? Only for those that are researchers. Despite the fact that we've known about lock-in for 25 years, it's still not very researched. And I think there's a whole scope of new frontiers that we could explore. A lot of the research branded for lock-in is still like the U.S. What about China, South Africa, Brazil, Russia? These are very different political systems. And what about people who live in very different contexts? We're talking about lock-in in a world of lattes and SUVs and flights. What does lock-in look like for a Tanzanian farmer? What does it look like for a single mother you know, in Bangladesh? It looks very, very differently. Their practices, their systems, and we know almost nothing about it. So I think this is also a call to arms for people like we want to celebrate the diversity of research on lock-in and promote far more inclusive and broad investigations of it. Thank you, Benjamin. To practice skills related to today's lesson, conduct a carbon lock-in policy analysis, investigate government policies or regulations that have contributed to carbon lock-in such as subsidies for fossil fuels, analyze the effects of these policies and propose alternative approaches that encourage decarbonization. Thank you for taking the How to Solve Climate Change course. If you want to learn the skills to solve this global challenge, join us for free at Plato.University for exclusive content, extra resources, and actionable exercises with every lesson. This course was produced by Plato University, where students turn passions into purpose and learn skills to change the world. Learn more at Plato.University.